This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. It's Kaz Tran here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music all in less than 30 minutes. We also give you access to the Double J and Triple J archives, packed full of iconic interviews. On this episode, it's the queen of Hollywood sadcore, Lana Del Rey. It was in 2012 that the American singer-songwriter first stepped into our lives. A Technicolor vision dripping in vintage Hollywood glamour. Haunted by memories of broken dreams, unrequited love and melancholia. She made sadness and longing a velvety and very comforting place to dwell. And through her bold and evocative songwriting, a cathartic place to draw strength from too. I'm feeling electric tonight. Perhaps one of the most impressive elements of Lana Del Rey's career is her evolution across her many great records, from Elizabeth Woolridge Grant to being labelled one of the great songwriters of her generation. Although she writes a lot about the West Coast of America and Californian glamour is a strong theme throughout her work, Lana Del Rey was born in New York City and grew up in a small mountain village about four and a half hours north of Manhattan. It wasn't until she finished school that she moved back closer to the city and started performing music under her real name, Lizzie Grant. Here she is talking to Tom and Alex on Triple J in 2012 about why she chose to perform under the name Lana Del Rey. The way that I'm represented in the public eye, I mean, is sort of conveyed by whatever the media writes in a way. But, I mean, it kind of depends. It's really more about what's written. But in terms of actually there being a personal distinction between Lana Del Rey and Lizzie Grant, I don't make one. There isn't one. And, like, when my mom and my manager are in the same room, I mean, you know, one might say Lizzie, one might say Lana, but they never think that they're talking to a different person. Why like did you my, Why did you choose that name then? Why Why the decision to be known as Lana Del Rey? Um. Well, first, my first record came out under that name, and I think that when I, you know, I started writing when I was eighteen, and when I started writing, I think I just wanted a name to sort of shape my sonic world towards. I wanted something that just sounded gorgeous coming off the tip of the tongue, and that was one of the names that I thought about. Um. It was just, uh, I just wanted something that was beautiful, but I did kind of consider what I was doing to be an art project. I didn't really feel the need to have a shift of character, because I've kind of been the same person for a long time. In 2012, Lana Del Rey released her major label debut and breakthrough album, Born to Die. She'd already gained global attention the year before when she uploaded a homemade video to YouTube for her single, Video Games. The album that followed made an instant impact. 
Lana found inspiration in old Hollywood stars that she came across in her grandparents' movie collections. She loved the strength and drama of the female characters, which comes through strongly in her sound and image. As she explained to Tom and Alex in 2012, three of the most loved songs of the album were actually written as a trilogy. I wrote video games first last year, and I had sort of written it at a time when I really let go of sort of all personal ambitions and just kind of settled into life on life's terms. And I just, I had gone back to enjoying writing for writing's sake. And I wrote video games really quickly, really easily, and I was inspired by Justin Parker's chords, who ended up being my main composer and producer on the record, other than Emil Haney. Um, and then after that, I found myself in California the next month where I wrote Blue Jeans. Blue Jeans, white shirt, walked into the room, you know you made my eyes burn. It was like James Dean. And again, I wrote that at a time when, you know, things still, you know, I had no deals, no nothing going on, but I was just really happy driving back and forth between uh, Santa Monica and Malibu, and I was kind of finishing reflecting my thoughts on, like, this one relationship that video games was inspired by. So that's where Blue Jeans came from. Then I kind of came back for full circle to London um, uh, at the end of the summer. And I was back in the studio with Justin Parker, and we were talking about how grateful we were that Fern Cotton had been playing video games on the radio. And, um, you know, we were, Justin and I always have our philosophical chats, and we were talking about how we were born to die. And I don't know, we, you know, I just ended up finishing my thoughts on kind of the way I was feeling about life in general and about this one relationship and I wrote uh, Born to Die just um, so that I felt like those three songs embody the spirit of the entire album and they're they're definitely my best and I just feel like they're very much me and I didn't compromise lyrically or melodically and I yeah Fate don't fail me now Take me to Born to Die was released in January 2012, and by July that year, Lana had arrived in Australia for her highly anticipated first tour. It was during her time here that she revealed something quite curious. After her shows, she would go down into the crowd and spend time with her fans. She explained why she does this when she spoke to Triple J's Alex Dyson from her hotel room. Sometimes when I get down on the ground, it's like I call it the think tank. Everyone tells me, <laughs> everyone tells me who I need to start talking to, like from all over the world, because they kind of some of the people who really like the music. They're all connected, you know, like 
they all talk to each other from different parts of the world. So Sort of on a Lana Del Rey forum kind of thing? A little bit. Like there was a girl <laughs> named Sarah who said I had to talk to a girl named Veronica from Brisbane. So I was like, okay, I'll try and figure out that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, they tell me what... They tell me what they like and why. And the funny thing is, is that like in every city, it's been the same kind of person, which is like a really, a, a person with a really sweet, sweet, sweet demeanor who ends up coming to the shows. I don't, it's unusual, but you notice it because they're so much nicer than everybody else. Born to Die led to an audible shift in the mood and themes of music in the 2010s. You can hear its influence in the work of artists like Billie Eilish, Lord, Banks, Sky Ferreira and Halsey, to name a few. It's been praised as one of the defining albums of the decade, a legacy that continued to grow on the strength of the albums that came after. The follow-up to Born to Die arrived in 2014 in a haze of psychedelic and desert rock and dream pop. Ultraviolence saw Lana Del Rey team up with producer Dan Orbach of the Black Keys fame. Here's Lana talking to Richard Kingsmill about how that creative partnership came about. Well, I guess, you know, I was in New York at Electric Lady Studios. My best friend Lee Foster runs Electric Lady, and um, he had said, you know, why don't you just come down and see what happens? And I started the record casually by myself with the session drummer and my guitar player from my band. And I think around December 20th, I really felt like I was done, but I wasn't really sure if I'd gotten what I wanted. And... Um, I went out to a club one night with my um, producer for my first record, Emil Haney, and uh, he was going to meet Dan, and I had never met Dan before. And um, Dan was just, it was, it, Dan was just really fun. And I told him about the record, and uh, he said he wanted to hear it. And um, when he heard the songs, he said he really liked them, but if what I was going for was more of a, like a West Coast fusion with the underground jazz appreciation he said he felt like maybe i hadn't really gotten there yet so he wanted to just take it a little bit further i guess yeah and and, but you were unsure with those recordings as well um i liked them but they were verging more towards like a kind of classic rock (laughs) feel and you wanted something to be a bit murkier a bit sort of more blurred yeah i guess i was it's funny like the word i was looking for was fuzz (laughs) <laughs> and then after having read some of Dan's interviews after I worked with him, I, I was laughing because I, I read that he was known for his fuzzy guitar. So I thought, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> I guess he was sort of brought into my life for a reason. He definitely brought that kind of like casual but chaotic element I was looking for. I think the thing that was amazing about Dan was when I was kind of explaining um, what I wanted in terms of colors and blue notes, he sort of interpreted that technically and he was just he was he's just a really good um, musician he's a good guitar player Let's talk about Brooklyn Baby as well, because this is another really wonderful track off the record, and it's got a sad story in that, and I don't know whether Lou Reed was supposed to sing part of the song, 
or whether the song was kind of half written and you were going to finish writing it with him? What, what, what were you thinking there? Uh, well, I had written it, and all the while I've been talking to uh, Lou Reed's manager for a few months, trying to get over to New York just to do anything with him, really, just to meet him, say hi, and see what he was thinking. I know he was still writing. And, um, you know, finally, just on one, uh, one, one night, I took the red eye overnight, and that was going to be the time that I hopefully went to meet him. But uh, the, the morning, I, you know, I landed at 7 in the morning, and that morning he, um, he had passed away. So, you know, I mean, he had never heard Brooklyn Baby. I wrote it kind of with him in mind. That was the track I thought he would really like. Uh, but um, so that was kind of my plan. But, yeah. I get down to be How did you react when you got off the plane and you heard the news? What went through your head? Um, well, I was just shocked that uh, just seconds after I landed that that's, that, that was the news. Uh, it was just, it was the timing of it that surprised me. I mean, obviously, I didn't know him, so I, it, 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 it obviously resonated in, in a much more personal way with, um, you know, his family and the, the people who really knew him. But... It, it was just some, it was kind of just a strange feeling, you know. We've got to talk about West Coast because obviously that was the first uh, track, the first big single from the record that we got. Such a wonderful track. Uh, I believe that the record company freak, freaked out a little bit though when they heard what you had done with the chorus. Well, I think it was a combination of me telling them it was going to be like a, a, a record rooted in jazz with an easy West Coast vibe to it. And then the first song I showed them was like this song that was supposed to be a single that slipped into an even slower halftime beat during the chorus. I think they were like, oh, come on, can't do this for once. Like do something normal but I mean you know I, I kind of joke around about it but the truth is they're so amazing they kind of know I'm just going to do whatever I'm going to do but uh, I mean I love that song for the first kind of soft single just because the vibe is right and it sets the tone for this kind of west coast feel dreamlike which is what a lot of the album is like for me as well it kind of had that sort of feeling when i was listening to it um so you didn't change it when the record company heard it that they didn't influence it it was already done you didn't change it after that did you uh it was done it was a demo first and then it became kind of what you heard on the record after i met dan and i mean yeah to be honest they were not so sure about it but it was uh it kind of was what it was so yeah we did leave it <laughs> we left it as it as it was and what about the lyrics? Is there actually a West Coast saying, or did you just come up with that? That's what someone had said to me when I was on the beach. I was at a beach party, and someone said, you know, they got a saying, if you're not drinking, then you're not playing. 
I just I thought it was cute. I thought it was a cute opening line. How do you feel about that lyric yeah. as well? Because obviously it's it's been talked about before about the alcohol problems you had as yeah. a teenager. Did you feel comfortable yeah. singing that line? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like thinking about the way things were for me and what my inspirations and motivations were for so long. They still seem like a part of my life, even though I'm not really I'm not drinking now. And you know. For some reason, I still really enjoy soaking up the mood of, like, a really dynamic party, you know, whether it's on the West Coast or wherever. Because like, I, I like that other people can have fun and I'm kind of wet loose. I feel like I'm a part of it when I'm there. So, yeah, I felt, I felt comfortable with it. I can't survive if this is all that's After exploring fuzzy, psychedelic guitar textures on Ultraviolence, Lana dipped back into the moods and atmospheres of Born to Die on her next album. 2015's Honeymoon had her signature cinematic pop with a dash of organs, synths and even trap beats. Here she is talking to Veronica and Lewis at the time about some of the stories on that album and whether the lyrics were autobiographical. You know, I didn't really feel too attached to, uh, like, writing, you know, what I had been doing much of this year. So, I mean, it's not that, it's not that they're not, but it's, it's kind of, I feel like it's more of a mood record, whereas, you know, I guess with, with some of my other songs in the past, I really kind of wanted to tell a little bit of my story. Um, so, I, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't really feel the need to do that in every song, but there, there are definitely some songs, like, um... I don't know, like Terrence Loves You feels personal, whereas Music to Watch Boys 2 feels more playful and imaginative. What do you mean by a mood record? Like, how would you describe what that is? It's a vibe record, so it's about the vibe. (laughs) It's more about the lyrics. (laughs) But, I mean, obviously I love playing with words, and they're they're important to me, but sometimes the the, uh, soundscaping or the sonic atmosphere is, is just as important. So... I, I don't know, I had more fun being playful with the production, I guess, on this record than I did um, in, on some of the other ones. Sophistication make you want to quit the you dating. Let's skip the games, let's quit the plan, boo, let's get acquainted. Notifications in complaints even when we on vacation. I knew she'd notice like I missed the payment. Lana's next album was a much bigger project with big name contributors in producers, engineers and artists. The title of the record, Lust for Life, reflects her more positive state of mind, more present, more able to be at peace after shifting a lot of the stories and baggage off her shoulders from the four albums prior. You can hear more lightness and freedom on this record, which had guest appearances from Stevie Nicks, ASAP Rocky, Playboy Cardi and The Weeknd. Here she is in 2017 talking to Ben and Liam on Triple J about her choice of collaborators. Well, I knew I, w- I wanted to have uh, ASAP Rocky and The Weeknd on there just because I'd known them from 2010 or 11. And I really felt like, you know, we, we had all kind of came out the same year. So I always said, if, you know, like if I had a lot of collaborations on a record, I wanted to 
start with them. So they were nice enough to <laughs> jump on the record with me. And then um, probably a year went by and I thought I still had a couple more things I wanted to say that I couldn't quite do myself. And mm. I felt like, you know, having Sean Lennon on the track listing, I, I really felt like that Lennon legacy is all about love. And I felt like he kind of, I don't know, like his aesthetic and his vibe sort of summed up what I was, um, one of the facets of the record I was going for. Yeah. And the, having Stevie Nicks on the record was just like amazing. That was like a real milestone moment for me having her um, in the same studio. You mentioned it was good being in the studio, but was a lot of this stuff done like down the line? You obviously got some studio time with Stevie, but did you have the same privilege with ASAP Rocky and, and The Weeknd? Yeah, I'm with Rocky and The Weeknd all the time. But um, Sean, unfortunately, was the only person I couldn't be with. But um, to say I FaceTimed him and <laughs> spent a lot of time talking about the production is a understatement we were just like oh my gosh for so long we were just talking about uh every little part of that record because he ended up producing that record with all of his um cool old vintage gear and you can you can really tell it's vintage when you listen to the track some of his dad's gear maybe yeah i I can't you know i can't remember now what he told me was his dad so i want to say the there was an organ wow uh, that's awesome or maybe it was his maybe it was his dad's guitar but when he told me, he was very excited about using it because I don't think he had used a particular thing uh, on the record before. Goddamn man child You fucked me so good that I almost said I love you Lana Del Rey's lyrical obsessions with nostalgia, the tarnished American dream and its darker undercurrents came to its fullest expression on her sixth album. Norman fucking Rockwell felt grand and majestic, but also intimate and sharply observed, resulting in many declaring her the greatest songwriter of her generation. Named after the US painter and illustrator, whose works presented an idealised version of American society and life, it was produced once again with Jack Antonoff. It's just what you do. One night during Lana's American tour for the album, she spontaneously invited Australian artist Julia Jacqueline on stage to perform a song. Here's Julia talking to Veronica and Lewis in 2019 about that incredible experience. Yeah, together on stage performing this song, Don't Know How to Keep Loving You, by Julia Jacqueline. Uh, it was incredible. And Julia Jacqueline joins you on the line right now. Hey, Julia, how are you? Hello. I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Where are you? Um, I'm in Philadelphia. Just landed. How is your life right now? Did you just get off stage? When did this all happen? Yeah, it was last night. I think I need some time <laughs> to figure out what happened. I'll imagine. <laughs> Can you tell us how it even began? Like how you ended up on stage there? Yeah, the internet is a wonderful place sometimes. Hmm. Um, she just reached out to me, just said she liked my music and flew me to Denver to to sing a song, which turned out to be my song. 
I, I didn't even have to learn anything. <laughs> yeah. What did she say to you when she got in touch? She was just like, oh, I love your music. <laughs> Do you want to come to Denver and sing a song? And I was like, no. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you have much time to rehearse? What was the whole process before you went up on stage? Yeah, no, not really. Not really. It was very, very last minute, spontaneous. Yeah. How was the um, <laughs> crowd reaction to the moment? It was great. Like, she, she just has, like, one of those crowds that, you know, is up for anything that she does. Just a really loyal fan base. So, yeah, I was a bit worried that I was, like, going to take time out of her own, of her show. Because she's got, like, you know, six albums. There's a lot of songs there. But because I even sang one of my own, like, another song by myself, and she just she just sat on stage and, like, watched me. <laughs> and the crowd was great. They were just, like so into it and so respectful and I think that's like yeah power to her and the kind of fans that she's cultivated yeah. How did you feel up there on stage with her? I've been a big fan of hers for a long time and I used to sing like Born to Die at Glebe open mic night when I was 21 so it was a pretty weird turn of events like looking to my left and seeing Lana Del Rey singing my song but yeah, one of those. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how it felt. It just. It happened, and now I'm going to spend a little while just reflecting on it. I think. From her consistently excellent albums to her brilliant collaborations and iconic music for film and TV, Lana Del Rey has perfected tragic Hollywood romanticism with her love of vintage glamour and beautiful melancholia. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Burke. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. And you can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening. Listener.